Shrink Wrap Radio number 829, Dr. Mike Denninger on a new eye movement treatment for resolving trauma. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Shrink Wrap Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Dr. Mike Denninger, who during the first half of his career rose to a leadership position in the education of deaf youth as an administrator at Gallaudet University. However, in his 40s, traumatic childhood memories triggered a mental health crisis and an extended period of recovery. In the years that followed, he chose a new path as a trauma therapist and trainer after earning a counseling degree and trainer certifications in neurolinguistic programming Ericksonian hypnotherapy and eye movement integration. His innovations in trauma treatment culminated in the 2021 publication of his book, Multi-Channel Eye Movement Integration, The Brain Science Path to Easy and Effective PTSD Treatment. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Mike Denninger, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Well, thank you, David, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. We're going to be discussing your book, Multi-Channel Eye Movement Integration, The Brain Science Path to Easy and Effective PTSD Treatment. I have to say that's really a mouthful. (laughs) It is. It is. Sorry about that. (laughs) I'm not sure I can get that whole title into the show name, you know, because there's a limited number of characters that I can post on on the YouTube version, but we'll see. But before we get into that, into into your book and all, I'd like to get to know you a bit and uh, to discuss your earlier life. I suspect there's... Uh, a lot of fascinating, fascinating uh, history there. Uh, is that okay? That's fine with me, sure. Uh, okay, well, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Rochester, New York, which is on Lake Ontario. It's in between uh, Buffalo and Syracuse. Um, and my family, my dad was working class. He worked at Kodak. Um, and I, I used to do market research for Kodak. As, as, as one of the things that I was doing. And so I would periodically go up to Rochester and go to the big Kodak facility up there. And uh, this was just when digital cameras were starting to come online from Japan. Okay. Uh-huh. And, and the people at Kodak were getting very nervous. 
Uh, they probably should have gotten more nervous. <laughs> I think you're right. Yes, it really decimated Kodak as it was. Yes. Um, so I grew up in a in a Catholic family. I uh, have five siblings. Oh wow! And um, unfortunately, my dad was a devoted alcoholic. He uh, hardly ever missed work, but um, he had the potential of getting uh, of raging and of getting violent, mostly. Oh, wow my mother um so that was kind of the that was kind of the theme in my high school years because uh-huh. he, was, he was at his highest level of drinking at that time oh wow yeah and what were your school years like uh, what was for what was it like for you going to school and having a situation at home etc well, of course, in those days, you never talked about anything like that at home. Uh-huh. Even neighbors on either side of us who knew all about it would not bring it up in front of us. Um, I went to parochial schools. I was kind of the best little boy in the world there. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you didn't have to really study very much in those days. There wasn't that much to learn. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I had good schooling. I went to... Uh, uh, parochial high school and did fairly well there but by that time my my dysregulation in my my physical and mental and spiritual life had begun um so i had probably do, do you think do you think that was sort of a a hidden effect of the problems at home of of the raging father i definitely do i i would say there were two things um there is a long history of alcoholism in the family. Uh-huh. So some of it I suspect was genetic. Um, yeah. Also history of depression. Um, and um, at that time I had social anxiety, which which hit me in my senior year. Um, and the form that my social anxiety took, interestingly enough, was that in in situations that I deemed were stressful, I, if I had any food in me, if I had recently eaten anything, I would have a fear that I was going to throw up. And it actually Uh happened about maybe only two or three times. Yeah. But it was set in stone for the next 20 years of my life. Wow. So although I had a career and I, I, you know, got degrees and stuff like that. That was always kind of haunting me in the background. Yeah. Well, your career is very interesting. Uh, In your bio, we learned that you rose to a leadership position in the education of deaf youth and as an administrator at Gallaudet University. Correct. And, you know, we've all heard of Gallaudet, I think. And um, so I have to wonder... uh, you must have. Did you learn ASL, American Sign Language? I absolutely did. Yes. Um, you must have become proficient in it to uh, to have worked in that environment and and uh, had the leadership role that you had. I did. Yes. And actually, we just had three deaf guests come to the house, so uh, I'm still connected to the deaf community in a big way. Uh, yeah. Well, you know that put me in in. Uh, and you, I should mention that you even wanted to have a somebody signing on this show. You asked me, would it be possible to uh, to have somebody sign? And 
I couldn't see it technically how we could do that unless you've got a technical way to add it to the video later. Um, mm -hmm. But I was I was touched both by your your compassion for the potential deaf listeners out there. I don't know if I have any uh, or not. I suspect. Uh, uh, well, I just don't know. But uh, mm -hmm. and. And of course, it made me think of uh, of the wonderful film Coda, and I'm sure you saw that film. Yes. And and what I really got from that film, as well as I think some other films, other sources, um, is there's this sense of, there's this sense of um, of it really being a a separate language, a whole body language that's very dramatic and very expressive. And there's some deaf people that uh, actually, given the choice to enter the hearing world or to stay in the deaf world, choose to stay in the deaf world. So, mm -hmm. so that suggests that there's something really special in terms of communication and connection. What's your view of that? Tell me about your experiences with that. Um, well, first I would say that it's not necessarily choosing to stay in the deaf world because all deaf people live in the hearing world. They have to work in the hearing world and unless, right. unless they work at a place like Gallaudet where ASL is used all the time. Um, but yeah, in the 1960s was the first time that someone who happened to be a hearing linguist um, began to define ASL as a language similar in, in every way to spoken languages. And now we have solid research about that. Um, so deaf people are best categorized as a cultural group who are bound together by deaf culture. And it's an associative community, similar to other communities that you would know in a particular geographical area or because of heritage, like an Irish-American community, um, but much more closely connected because of their common language, ASL. Um, yeah, yeah. So kind of an in-group in thing, really. Are, th are there things that can be expressed in the hearing world that cannot be expressed in ASL? No. Or, or vice versa? Are there things that can be expressed in ASL that really don't make it into the hearing world? Well, uh, think of it as uh, interpreting any language to another language. There are uh -huh. certain things culturally in a language that are not going to fit one-to-one -one in a new yeah. different language, right? Yeah. As a sign language interpreter for many years, you draw on your knowledge of both cultures in order to be able to transform what it is that an ASL speaker has said into English so that it has, you know, um, a valid uh, comparison to the original comment. Was it hard for you uh, to become proficient in AS ASL? You were already an adult, right? So it's not like you grew up with deaf parents. That's right. That's right. I... I fell into it when I was in high school. I um, had a job. Well, it was right after graduation. I had a job working construction. And uh, we were working on someone's driveway. And there was a deaf boy who kept hanging around. And I saw him using sign language. And I just became fascinated. Um, I eventually, like a few years later, 
went to uh, get a master's degree in education of the deaf. And that was when I became, I would have to say, obsessed with the language. <laughs> I just, I, I would hang around deaf people. I would go to deaf clubs. I fingerspelled so much at home that my mother told me, would you please stop that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it became second nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's that's how I became proficient. And I would have to say that there are some people who have a natural inclination, hearing people who learn ASL as a second, second language, have a natural inclination if they have good eye-hand coordination, physical mobility, and I, I equate it to something like basketball. You know, there are certain things you have to do in basketball to dribble and to move that some people are more talented at than others. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's one thing. But the second thing is you really have to have um, a sense of visual memory and visual um, mobilization with your hands so that you can, you know, you can do what you need to do in ASL. Seems like it's not just with your hands. It also, uh, as an outsider, it looks like it's its whole body and it's facial and it's uh, it's dramatic. Oh, it is indeed. I mean, there are certain facial um, expressions or even contortions that you would use with a particular sign. So if I if I sign this sign, sit up here a little bit, it's a five on my chest and I'm going like this, that sign translated would mean something like, ooh, that's fantastic, or ooh, that's really cool. Yeah. But when you sign it, you go, uh-huh, the pouted lips. Uh-huh. And there are, you know, just thousands and thousands of facial expressions um, that you would use and body language. You might cringe your shoulders if you like, ouch. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, hearing people might do that naturally, too. But in, in ASL, it is a, a signal part of the language. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I feel a little jealous because I, I feel like I have... Uh, am cultural are a cultural male, you know, and not terribly expressive in the face. And uh, you know, I, I wish I were more expressive. I probably should have studied acting. I never did. <laughs> yeah. You wanted to? Um, no, I think I was afraid of. Uh, I, actually, I, in some ways, feel like I was and am a natural performer, but. I was afraid of having to memorize stuff. I think I've always, I think my memory has always been a little bit on the weak side. I see. And, I mean, and, and, and anxiety around that, yeah. yeah. As soon as I try to think of something, it goes away often, you know, and particularly aging doesn't seem to help that process any. No, it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Moving along, now your bio states that it was in your 40s that traumatic childhood experiences, which you've already told us a bit about, triggered a mental health crisis and for an extended period of recovery. And how long, that was like, what, 10 or 12 years or more? Well, no, it wasn't that long, I would say, but, um, well, let me begin by saying that I was I was an alcoholic myself. 
Ah. A maintenance drinker. I, I got the gene, and from the time that I was 17 until the time that I was 45, I drank alcoholically. Uh-huh. And that was coupled in part with my fear of uh, throwing up, if you will. So if I had a couple of drinks before I had to go to a dinner, that would calm me enough so that I could eat food and not worry about it. Uh-huh. Um, and I even dabbled with uh, tranquilizers in that respect, too. So think about that as happening over 20 to 25 years of my life. All the while that I was getting degrees and, you know, building a career and things like that. Um, and I made a decision when I was in my mid-40s that that didn't work for me. I actually, one afternoon, found myself frozen in my uh, my family room chair. I couldn't get out of it. I couldn't think about driving. I couldn't think about doing anything. Um, what, and that, was was that like a form of passing out or? No, I I certainly would make it to my bed, you know, uh, when I drank. But um, the drinking amount increased over the years, yeah. so that I, I would drink maybe a half a bottle of scotch, you know, in an evening. Um, and when I decided then that that wasn't going to work for me, they, actually, there's a very interesting story about that that I'll tell briefly. Good. Well, we're here to share stories. That's fine. Okay. So um, I was divorced at the time. I had two children and my son was living with me. He was about 10 years old. And... Um, on Saturday one one time, I had a therapy appointment. And um, the day before that, I came home from work on Friday. And I walked into the house and I had a bottle of champagne and a bottle of vodka in a bag. And my son says to me, what's in the bag, booze? It was what he expected me to bring in. It's yeah. what he knew about me. And that struck me. It struck me deeply. And we sat down that night and we watched a movie and he, he had a hard time. It was a field of dreams where a son tries to connect with a father. <clears throat> Everything was like orchestrated for me to get a message, I think. And I saw him hiding behind a pillow and I tried to talk to him and he didn't want to talk to me about what we were watching on the movie. The next morning I said, I'm going to therapy. Do you want to come with me? Or do you want to stay here? He said, yeah, I'll come with you. I can do my homework there. And I thought, this is bizarre. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know why you would say that. When we were driving to the therapy appointment. I had a panic attack. Very bad one. And it makes me a little emotional now. I felt like I couldn't control the wheel. And my son was in the car oh, with boy. me seated yeah. next to me. And I got to the therapy appointment and I went in and I said, I've got to stop drinking. And my, you know, and I said, my son, you know, is an important part of this. And the therapist said, well, he's here for a reason. Why don't you ask him to come in with us? And I was like, I'm not sure I want to do that. But I did. I asked him and he said, I, I told him, I knelt down on a knee and I said, I've got to stop drinking. And do you want to come in and talk with me and the therapist about this? And he did not want to. But he said to me, 
after we're done, can we go buy some, they were $60 jeans. And this was a long time ago. He's 44. (laughs) So anyway, that was my entry to sobriety and to getting my life back. And that was the beginning of it. But a year later, after I had been sober for a year and in AA and all of that, um, everything changed. I started to get very anxious. I started to have uh, really violent dreams, some of them involving my father. And um, they culminated um, with one memory. Ah, I didn't expect this would be difficult for me, but it is where um, I was uh, sexually molested by my father in the coal bin Mm. of our house in the basement. Mm. Oh, boy. And it's not like I had a dream and it was I woke up and said, oh, my gosh, that happened. It happened over a long period of time. I recorded all of my dreams. I was uh, really alert to what was going on. And I had no clue in the beginning that it had anything to do with my father. but then it eventually fell into place. I had like three very clear memories that came back to me. Well, very clear, clear as they can be when they've been dormant for 25 or 30 years, right? Yeah, wow. So for me, the memories were repressed. And although I always had a hint, what what Freud called screen memories. Okay. The screen memory is something that exists there. You have a, a um, episodic memory that's very clear for you that relates to something that's behind the screen. Right. And for me, um, one Saturday afternoon, my cousins and I and my brother went with my dad to pick up some free coal across town because we were a working class family. We brought the coal back and my brother swung his shovel around and he cut my cousin on the head, so there was a lot of blood. Um, that memory was the one that I had all my life. It was a biographical memory that was perfectly clear for me, but I could so, not. So you had a you had a clear image of injury to a boy. Correct. Correct. Uh, but, but underneath that was the injury to you as a boy. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So. Um, all of this unfolded over about four or five years, I would say. And um, uh, my my analytic part is kicking in again. Okay, not, yes. Not, not, not only did the did the boy have an injury, but he had an injury to his head. And, right. Uh, and I'm thinking that, you know, mentally, you were right. injured deeply by these events. Yeah. That's right. And because because it involved oral sex, that's another reason why that's correct. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So I had a great therapist, wonderful guy who walked me through. He was uh, what I would call, well, he was very well versed in traditional therapies, um, but also was a hypnotherapist. Okay. So uh, some of our work involved that. Um just remembering in the relaxed state what it was like, what might have happened. So, you know, some of the memories were half memories, but there were, I would say, three that I can confirm, you know, from all my experience that uh, I believe were true memories for me. 
yeah, yeah. In that era. Yeah, well, what a powerful background. So, so you had this wonderful therapist. Is there any, you know, I wanted to ask you what pulled you through? Ah, um, I can remember saying to him, when is this going to end? Because uh, I couldn't sleep. I was, you know, I, I wrote a poem uh, where I characterized myself as a zombie walking through the night because mm -hmm. I would shuffle from one bed to a couch to somewhere else and, and yeah. sleep just eluded me. Um, and when I asked him, when is this going to end? He said, when it's, when it's time. And I was so angry at him at uh, that point. You know, yeah, because I felt, so it, felt evasive to you, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah I felt felt evasive, and at the same time, I knew internally because I wasn't a dummy, you know, that he couldn't predict when this would end. Yeah. Um, but I wanted some assurance that you know I would move past it at some point, and I eventually did. It involved uh, medication initially. Um, that kind of, and it got diagnosed with PTSD, of course, and uh, um, prolonged, um, prolonged, what do they call it? Anyway, delayed, uh, delayed uh, PTSD. Yeah, post-traumatic. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, post-traumatic. Yeah. Um, and finally found my way. 12 steps were very important in my recovery. Uh-huh. Um, I found groups of people where I could uh, talk about things that were more spiritual, being raised Catholic, and, and by that time I was um, a gay man. I had come out of the closet, um, and that was, I guess that's another layer that was superimposed on all of this because I had that shame for many years about um, who I was and how I could possibly be that. And shouldn't I get married? And well, that must uh, have been hard in school because kids joke about that and tease other kids, and particularly if if you're not fully athletic, uh, uh, powerfully built, etc., you're likely to be accused of being gay early on. Very true. Yeah, yeah. and I went to an all boys high school, so it was you know even worse than that. Um, however, I was athletic. I was, I could pass. Uh -huh. <laughs> I was, you know, yeah, I looked like a real strong heterosexual guy. Uh-huh. Nobody would suspect. Thank goodness there was, there was something there <laughs> to hang yeah, on to. Yeah. yeah. But, on, you know, on the flip side, that also adds to your shame. Mm -hmm. Because it's uh, like Brene Brown, you know, lays out the distinction between guilt and shame. Guilt is uh, uh, our feelings of uh, self-deprecation for what you have done. But shame is caused by who you are. Uh -huh. And you believe in your core that you are uh, objectively flawed, then there is no way out. It's hard to get... It's, yeah, I've become... Uh... As time has gone on, done more interviews, I've become aware of what a powerful. Some people don't even say shame is an emotion; that it it's it's powerfully deep and hard to get over. 
Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it, it takes a while to, you know, crawl back to, you know, some sense of balance and stability. Oh, I can only guess. Yeah. Um, I have to ask, did you experience any sexual abuse from priests? Uh, not directly. However, um, if I were to go to confession and I would confess a sin that was homosexual in nature, um, that was always a risky time for me. And in fact, one time a priest probed very um, sensually about what I actually did because I didn't yeah. define what I did. I just said, you yeah. know, I had done things. And uh, he got so sexually charged that I got afraid. Yeah, and, you could tell he was getting a vicarious uh, thrill from the description. Right. Yeah. But I never went back. Um, and there was also a, I went to a high school where um, priests were the, um, the teachers. Uh -huh. And um, the summer after I finished high school, I was working in a park um, also. And I, how can I say this delicately? Um, there was a priest from my high school there and I saw him in a very uncompromising position and behavior. You mean compromising? I, I'm sorry, compromising. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, and um, it just, it floored me, rocked me wow. to my core. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah that, was, that was a tough one. Um, and I had known him and worked with him, and it was just so embarrassing to me um, to see him like that, you know. And it also, you know, comes crashing in on you. Look how terrible this is, right? So yeah. here I am, you know, at 20, yeah, 19 years old, and I'm struggling with my own sexual identity. And then I see a Catholic priest who was my teacher and my mentor. And, you know, there he is doing that. And what does that say about me? And it just pushes yeah. you farther back yeah. into the closet and adds to the, the level yeah. of shame. Yeah. Well, not surprisingly, somehow you migrated towards trauma therapies and, and become, <laughs> developing a lot of expertise in working with trauma therapies. Uh, how did you first get introduced to trauma therapy? Was it more of an intellectual thing, or were you actually on the receiving end initially? Well, the interesting part about that is um, when I decided to get my master's in counseling. So I have a doctorate in special ed administration and I was working at Gallaudet and I decided that post-career I might want to, you know, post-career that I was in, I might want to go into counseling. So I started the counseling program and that's just before I started my downturn with depression and all of the memories about abuse. So I was in the counseling program when that was happening to me and I actually took a leave of absence in order to recover. And did, did the counseling program trigger it for you, uh, trigger a lot of those memories and all previous No, it had, started, it had started before oh, that. Okay. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I would say the counseling program was very helpful to me because oh. my advisor was... Uh, well steeped in trauma work and 
And then when I finished that and, and I, I took a leave from the university um, and eventually retired early because they were downsizing. So at 50 years old, I left Gallaudet and opened private practice. And it was just natural that I would do what I knew best. Yeah, yeah. So you did go through uh, a number of, uh, I know that you studied NLP, Neural yes. Linguistic Programming. Right. Actually, I'm blocking on their names now, but I went to a workshop with the founders of NLP. Um, Richard Bandler and John Bandler Grinder. Bandler and, and Grinder, yeah. So I was I can't remember if it was a week-long or five-day or three-day, um, but, but that was a... a Certainly, a meaningful experience, and I think they were. It was early in their career. They had brought out these two books on uh, the magic of. Um, I can't even remember the, the title. The structure of magic. Yeah. The structure of magic. Yeah, based on their on their study of uh, therapists, particularly uh, short term th- uh, therapists, and also Erickson, Milton Erickson, and right. I see I see in your bio that. Uh, that was; those were all important connections for you. Correct. When I started uh, working after my license, um, there was a uh, NLP training program in Silver Spring. I lived in in the D.C. area, run by Ron Klein, um, and he was a, a consummate trainer. Mm-hmm. And so I took my NLP training from him. And I also learned um, eye movement integration from him in 2002. Now that was the technique that is the basis for my work in my book, multi-channel eye movement integration. So tell us a bit about eye movement integration, EMI, which which preceded the multi-channel approach. And uh, also, you mentioned uh, somewhere in there EMDR comes to play too. So tell us about about how that mix happened for you and what what you learned from it and what you were impressed by. And and I think maybe the theoretical underpinnings of this sort of thing have shifted around a bit over the years. So maybe you can talk about that as well. Uh, yeah, definitely has. Um, <clears throat> so. Um, two leaders in NLP training and publications were uh, Steve and Connie Ray Andreas. Um, they set up a publishing company, and this was in the 1970s. And it was while Bandler and Grinder were doing their thing and beginning to train people. And they were an integral part of that. But they had their own uh, training company um, uh, and publication uh company called uh, Real People Press. They developed EMI. And then the story about how they developed it is very intriguing because Francine Shapiro, who developed EMDR. And uh, who I interviewed, by the way, years ago. Oh, did you really? Yeah. yeah. That's right. I saw that. Yeah. Um, she, when she was doing her doctoral work, she interned in the office of John Grinder. Um, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yes, yes, she did. And she was um, responsible for administration and sales, but she also got training. You know, as they would do training, she would participate uh-huh. in the training. So 
She knew a lot about NLP from her time there. After she left, after she got her doctorate, uh, actually, it's her doctoral uh, dissertation, I believe, that um, was EMDR. Um, so when she created EMDR, because there were parallel things going on in NLP, she maintained that EMDR had nothing to do with NLP. And that's just, that does not make sense at all. Okay, we should let, in case there's anybody that's not familiar with it, EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Regulation, is that right? Reprocessing. 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 Yeah. Reprocessing. yeah. So, um, in, in NLP, <clears throat> um, DILTS, D-I-L-T-S, was a guy who was a student of Bandler and Grinder in the early years. And he tells a story about eye movements that uh, led him to do some research. He was in Grinder's class, and Grinder gave a homework assignment, which was to think about a behavior of their own that they didn't give much thought to, but give it a name and then see if that changes anything. So uh, huh. Robert Diltz was not quite sure about the assignment. He approached Grinder after class and he said, could you explain that to me? And he said, well, what about that? Your eyes just moved to the side. That's a behavior that you do. So he was looking for unconscious behaviors that you give a name to to see how it might change um, your perception of the behavior. Yeah. Um, and that led... Robert Diltz to go on and to develop a study where he looked at eye movements and he his uh, hypothesis was that eye movements, depending on where they go, are related to sensory processing. So the model concisely is if my eyes, if I'm a right-handed person and um, normally organized, if you will, and the research on uh, this on brains and perceptions and stuff like that started with Roger Sperry in 1959 to 1968. Um, left brain, right brain, um, the types of things that we do with either side of the brain. All that research, even up to today, is is uh, based largely on right-handed people because left-handed people are thought to be organized differently. Yeah. Yeah, so um, Robert Diltz developed this study where he looked at eye movements, for example, if I think about the first bicycle that I ever had and somebody says, what color was it? My eyes will tend to go up to the left. This is the way my eyes are organized. Are you right-handed? Are you right-handed person? I am right-handed, okay. yeah. yeah. And if somebody's eyes go up to the right instead of the left, I ask them, are you left-handed? Or are you ambidextrous? Yeah. And oftentimes, you know, it's not 100%, but oftentimes that's correct. Eye movements up to the right is constructed visual processing. Some experience that I've never had before that I'm, that I'm forced to create in my uh, imagination. So yeah. if I say, can you imagine what a uh, purple frog with red polka dots would look like? The person's eyes would tend to go to the right. 
and and on the horizon out to the right and left is the auditory processing. They're organized generally the same as in in terms of past and future, the same as the visual. So if mm. I'm remembering a song that I heard yesterday, my eyes go to the left. If I'm trying to imagine Donald Trump singing the Star Spangled Banner, my eyes will go to the right. Right. Okay. So that was the the substance of Dill's research. And Francine Shapiro um, would have known about that completely. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember wow. in the Bandler Grinder workshop that I was in, they definitely were talking about eye movement, uh, stare, looking up to the right or to the left, and uh, and of course, and we've all noticed that uh, we've all had teachers that said the answer is not on the ceiling. You know, kids will just <laughs> naturally when they're trying to to remember something, they'll look up to the towards the ceiling. <laughs> That's right, which is what your eyes just did, too. I thought you were making uh, a point, correct? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so that's called the NLPI movement model. Uh-huh. And um, a few years later, that was 1977 when he did the research, 79 when he published it with the NLP um, publications. And Shapiro developed the MDR in 1987. Uh-huh. So we're talking about that time span. Her her description of how she discovered it was that she was walking in a park, she had a disturbing memory, and um, then it disappeared. And she did this self-introspection where she was trying to figure out well, what happened. And she figured out, and this is as clear as she gets in all of her writing, she figured out that it was automatic eye movements that were causing the thought to disappear, right? And so then she tried doing it um, intentionally. So she would think about a disturbing thoughts and she would move her eyes and she found that there was a desensitizing effect. The reason why that falls apart is that it's impossible for automatic eye movements to desensitize a sensory memory because they're automatic. When people have PTSD, their eyes do move in a particular pattern because they're recalling visual and sensory, other sensory aspects of it, but it's a never ending loop. Their eyes keep going every time they think about it and the eyes are automatically moving. They, um, they don't desensitize. It just continues the PTSD memory forward. Okay. forward, uh, forward, uh-huh. forward. You could only interrupt that memory if you did it intentionally. If you thought about the memory and then you had somebody do something intentionally with their eyes, like following a finger or some object. Yeah. So um, I think that just from that beginning and there in my book, I do write about other reasons why EMDR borrowed heavily from NLP creation. Um, Not to say that it wasn't a success. It was a great success. But the reason why MEMI is so much more efficient is because MEMI uses all of the locations in the visual field. So we move a client's eyes to the corners. We move them around in the center. 
And EMDR only uses horizontal eye movements at eye level. Uh-huh. Or sometimes they use a diagonal. The interesting thing about that is the way Shapiro described it is you move from a client's lower left to their upper right if it's diagonal and you do this horizontally. Those two movements parallel exactly the visual accessing position of the NLP model and the auditory accessing positions of the NLP model. So, and that that research um, was clear at the time. And there were other eye movement studies um, that precursed uh, Robert Diltz's research where it was clear that eye movements did indeed relate to sensory um, sensory memories and sensory desensitization, but Shapiro never referenced them. Let and me just were, back you back you up a moment. You use the acronym MEMI, M-E-M-I? Yes, M-E-M-I. And, and what does that stand for? Multi-channel eye movement integration. Okay. And what does multi-channel mean? What are these channels that you're referring to? The channels are the um, sensory processing channels. So in my work, I've pretty much confirmed that there are three factors that are most um, most um, potent in the maintenance of PTSD memories. One is physical or somatic feelings, visceral feelings. One is emotional feelings. And one is the visual imagery related to an experience. Uh-huh. So when we work um, with doing eye movements in MEMI, we're engaging all of those sensory processing areas. And uh, EMDR, for example, does the auditory and perhaps some of the visual, but it doesn't take in the whole visual field. Yeah. Now you make uh, you make extraordinary claims, and I want to get to that. Yeah. <laughs> because. Uh, <clears throat> You, and I interviewed somebody else. I think it was an EMDR actually person, who who, who said you know the, the cure for trauma. Um, what different you your book has got lots of case histories, and maybe you can share some of those with us here. Um, what kinds of cases have you worked with? Uh, are there some that are amenable, some that are not amenable to this approach? But that's the realm I want to go to now. Okay, um, sure. Yeah, I've worked with just about every type of um, experience trauma that you could imagine. Military personnel, um, genocide, um, uh, rape, sexual assault, child abuse, um, but in addition to all of those heinous areas, and, and the worst, of course, are genocide, um, rape or sexual assault, um, and um, physical atrocities from war. If you look at the research, those are the three that um, result in the highest percentage of PTSD cases. Mm -hmm. um, let me think of one. So. I worked with young, uh, young. I worked with a guy who was a white collar professional, and he um, came to see me because his 
his husband had um, come to see me the week before and said he was disappearing at night. I, I had never met either of them. And um, I right away thought that maybe the substance abuse was an issue there. But he asked me if I was willing to see the guy with, you know, the problem. And I said I would. He came the next week and I talked with him. He was already in therapy. And I told him that, you know, I really couldn't work with him until he had made a decision whether he wanted to continue in therapy with the other therapists. Um, but he he eventually um, did finish therapy with the other person, came to see me. And in the first session, he told me about uh, child abuse. Um, now, I'm going to give you, I found out some of this information over time, but I'll give you all of it at one time. Okay. His mother was bipolar, and there he had three siblings. His dad left the house when he was about 10 years old. Dad was an alcoholic. Um, he had a wine bottle, you know, smashed over his head and had to go to ER as one example for, by his father. Um, but then he told me one instance where he had been sexually abused by his mother. Um, it's, it's some graphic detail, very clear memories. And um, he was disappearing overnight, I found, because in the, I think the second session, I just asked him, what are you using? You're using something. I don't know what it is. What are you using? And he said, crystal meth. Um, I said, okay, well, we're going to have to work on that. But my take on uh, people who are substance abusers who have experienced trauma like this is that you can and should address the trauma early in their substance abuse recovery. Otherwise, it's going to hamper their potential for success. Sure, sure. So he told me about the um, told me about the sexual abuse, and I said, "Okay, well, we can do MIMI. We can do eye movement therapy on that, and and help you with that." We, he agreed. We um, and we only did one session on that. Now, when you well, say he was disappearing at night, what, oh, what does that mean? Well, he would go, he would walk into town. We're talking about four or five miles. And he would go to the place where drugs were available. He would buy crystal meth. And, you know, that's, that's a drug that you basically take and you zone out for hours and hours and, and you continue using. And then in the morning when he was done using, he would go back home. But he just he told his husband that the reason why he disappeared was because he was depressed and uh, over the death of his mother. She had died three months earlier. Okay, so was he in some kind of a fugue state when he was going out, or was he in nor quotes normal <laughs> addict consciousness? Yeah, as, as normal as you could be in those. He was still working, you know, maintaining his his job as a white-collar professional. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah, it was all the drugs. Yeah. I'm sure he was depressed, too, and that may have been the entryway to the drugs because he didn't have a drug problem before that. Um, so the difference would be um, when we did the eye movements, um, we were about halfway through. There, there are four sets of eye movements in MEMI. Um, they go very fast as opposed to EMDR. 
when you're doing EMDR, you can do 15 or even 20 different sets of these eye movements. With this multi-channel approach where you're engaging all of the sensory systems, it tends to go much faster. So I did one set with him and I was starting on the second set and things were starting to get a little bit better and he just stiffened and his eyes popped and he said, I just remembered something else. And I said, okay, what, what do you remember? He, he told me a story about um, being at a kitchen table um, where his mother was forcing him to participate in a decision to abort a baby that he had fathered at 14. And the baby's host was his mother's girlfriend. So not only, you know, had his mother forced him to have sex with her girlfriend, but then she later on, when the girlfriend became pregnant, forced him to sit with the two of them and agree to an abortion. And imagine what that does to a young man. Yeah. So this is not unusual for people who have been um, uh, sexually traumatized more than once. Well, you think that the worst memory, in his case, he thought the worst memory, and that's where we start. I say, what's what's the worst of it and that's what we focus on we want a particular moment in time a problem state as they say in nlp uh, uh-huh. that we focus on in order in order to de-escalate what is below it so when you when you tend to um, desensitize a memory at the top of the totem pole if you yeah. will, then the other memories often desensitize in an escalating kind of how, way. How do you decide to move on? How do you test to see if, okay, we're okay at this level? How do you go on to the next level? Great question. Um, so in MEMI, there are um, two tests that we use. One is the SUD scale, which is used in EMDR. And, and you know, it's just... Uh, Subjective level of distress. Subjective level of distress scale, yeah, developed by Joseph Volpe. And the way we describe it is zero is no distress at all, and 100% is the highest possible distress. So when we start out, we do a pretest before we do any eye movements. So I would ask him, um, when you think about that memory, we're going to say it's at 100% now. After we do the eye movements, it if it gets better, it'll go down 90, 80, 70. If it gets worse, it'll go over 100. That's one scale. Um, the second one is one that I developed called intensity scale. And this is this is unlike anything that I think exists in any other eye movement huh. therapies. So remember the visual imagery and the auditory uh, sensations, and then there's physical feelings and there's emotional feelings. We test those at the beginning. So I say, okay, that visual image out there that you have of this is in color or black and white? With polar opposites, it's in color. And this is just the pretest. Is it a movie or a still photo? It's a movie. Is it near or far away? Mm-hmm. Is it framed or panoramic? Is it clear or unclear? And then we have that image. And then I ask, okay, if I give you an intensity scale, 
zero to four. The zero represents no intensity at all, and four is the highest possible intensity. What score would you give that image? And they'll say, if it's really bad, a four, which is the highest, or a three, which is high, but not yeah. the highest. And then we move on to physical feelings. Where do you feel that physically in your body? Well, my my chest has pressure, or I've, I've got uh, nausea on my stomach, or I've got a knot up here in my neck. Okay, on a scale from zero to four, what score would you give that? Okay, three. And you move on to emotional feeling. What emotions do you attach to this memory? Fear. Um, fear, um, terror. Okay, which one is the stronger emotion? Terror. Okay, on a scale from zero to four, well, how would you rate that? And so we have all those numbers at the beginning. Then we do a set of eye movements, and you say, now, look out there and tell me if this experience is the same or different. We don't guide them. We just want their subjective experience. And they'll say, well, it's different. I'll say, okay, how is it different? Well, the image is farther away. This typically happens. An image moving farther away is a uh, sign of desensitization. Yeah. Or the movie's not in color anymore. It's black and white. Okay, does that make it better or worse? Oh, better. Oh, that's awesome. What score would you give it now? It was a four when we began. Well, you know, it's a three or a two now. And you don't have to go down to zero. Same with the sud scale. If it was 100%, then if you hit 50 on the sud scale, this is true with, I think, prolonged exposure therapy as well. If you hit 50, it's usually manageable going forward, as opposed to EMDR, which wants you to get that sud score down to zero like it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, so those are the two tests that we use. But I also, <clears throat> for PTSD, I use the uh, PTSD checklist. Uh, PTSD, uh, it's called the PCL5, PTSD checklist for DSM-5. Uh -huh. That's developed by the Department of Defense and used commonly in the military and available to anyone who would want to use it. It's a 20-question very uh, simple test, easy to score and use. Um, and that's a before and after. You do it before the first session and you would do it, I would do it like five to eight weeks after we've completed our work with MEMI to see if the results have been durable. Yeah. Uh, do you have a sense of the average number of time or uh, visits or does it really vary all over the place? It doesn't. Um, I would say for a single incident um, trauma, like a bike accident or a car accident, um, something that's not of a sexual nature or extremely violent nature, one session. So if somebody comes in and says, um, my boyfriend broke up with me and it was, it's been a year now and I can't get him out of my mind, that would be a single session piece of work. And they would, their memory would be desensitized after that. Um, for something more serious, I would say three sessions. Um, 
And the way that I work, I, I take referrals from other therapists. I do the desensitizing, right? I, I help them uh, be able to think about and feel in relation to a traumatic experience um, without all of the negative aspects that they came in with. They won't be able to, they won't think of it as often. It won't be as um, threatening as before. Sometimes they can't even get an image of it up in front of them. However, you know, sometimes when PTSD is with a person for a long time, they also yeah. have behaviors that they have used to adapt to the situation. And that's more a, a counseling piece of work in my mind. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So it sounds like uh, sometimes you're helping clear away the acute distress so that they can go back into the, whatever other therapy they were in to, uh, to do that kind of work. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what it's in some ways it could sound pretty routine, you know, that you've got these specific tests, uh, uh, steps. And by the way, all of this is described in great detail in the book. I want to let people know. And, um, so what keeps it from being, uh, from you becoming bored with it and becoming so routine that you just go mentally asleep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's probably my own projection. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking. What is this yeah. guy? How is he coming at this? Um, so the way I put it together is uh, because I'm on a mission to um, help people the way that I was helped by someone else, that it never becomes boring for me. Um, each case that comes to me <clears throat> is a new puzzle. Um, you have to understand, you know, according to NLP, that there may be other issues surrounding what's going on. It's not always that simple. NLP uses a term called ecological issues. So if somebody has another part of their life where they're stuck, like an abusive husband at home that may, may mirror some of the uh, you know trauma that they are here and presenting to me as a therapist, then I need to be um, aware that I need to probe for those areas. Especially if I do three sets of eye movements and there's no change, then I'm asking myself, why is this not working? What else is going on with this person? Yeah. And a la Milton Erickson, you have to um, go to school on your client, as he would say. Hmm. You have to really put yourself in their shoes and understand what are the dynamics that are creating yeah. this whole level of distress for them. Yeah, yeah. So what what I get from what you've said and and um, and from the book is that you really uh, there's enough flexibility in this that if you're really tuning into the other person, it really calls forth your creativity. That is not going to be doing the same thing with every person. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, is there any quotes, any research out there yet to, by way of some kind of proof? Uh, no, if you're talking about evidence-based research, other than yeah. what I've done. Yeah. 
Um, in, in the book, there is a, uh, a pilot study that I did, which shows very good results. But I would, um, I would uh, in defense, I would say this. When you do eye movement therapy, whether it's EMDR <clears throat> or brain spotting, which is another technique, or um, uh, accelerated resolution therapy, or MIMI, any eye movement, when you're thinking at the same time about a distressing event, is going to give you good results, uh-huh. no matter what you're doing. What I'm trying to say is um, we need to define the precise elements that are most effective and most efficient with the eye movements in desensitizing memories. And I'm working on an article now, but there's a lot of research in the last four years about eye movements and how they naturally um, dysregulate or depotentiate the amygdala. Not only the amygdala, but they cut off signals from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex. Okay. They cut off signals to the um, uh, frontodorsolateral network, which is a, a network in the brain, right? Yeah. And and there's there's several studies, two this year, one uh, by a team at Tufts in uh, Tulane, I think, where they have isolated the fact that eye movements, um, or not eye movements, sorry. They've isolated the fact that norepinephrine, um, when it is secreted, it causes a burst of electrical energies to come out of the amygdala. And that is what triggers the heightened state of alert in the whole brain. Mm-hmm. And then you couple that with eye movements. They've done eye movements on mice, where they have them watching <laughs> really? the bar go across uh, right and they have determined through ultrasound imaging that um things are changing in the amygdala that wow. the the dysregulation in the amygdala is decreasing with eye movements yeah, yeah. there's a study also out of um scandinavia but it was on people and they worked at uh, they looked at both working memory as a possibility for why eye movements improve dysregulation in the amygdala, and also the eye movements themselves. And they found that both the eye movements and a working memory task, like um, showing a set of numbers and then blanking the screen, it was called a two back process. So you show a set of numbers. You show a second set of numbers, and then the third screen has some numbers from the first set, and they want you to say if those numbers were in the first set or not. Wow! So that's a working memory test. Yeah, yeah. Test, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that decreased the signals in the amygdala, as the eye movements did. So without without any other stimulation, just having someone watch bars go by and having, you know, and then testing them afterwards, 24 hours later, they weren't able to retain the fear memory at the same level. Mm. So the eye, movements, yeah. Yeah, the eye movements themselves work. And I think the implication from those researchers was, if you can do this simply with eye movements, why would you do a lot of cognitive work? 
cognitive restructuring and you know having people uh, test their um, their thoughts and their rationales as being rational or not. Yeah, yeah. And that takes a lot of time. Well, we're at the point where we're, we're going to wrap things up. I wonder if there are any uh, final thoughts that you have or any points that you didn't get across as much as you'd like to, or, or are we there? <laughs> well, I would, I would just extend what I was just talking about with the research. I think over the next 10 years, we're going to isolate what aspects of eye movements actually are um, operational in changing the amygdala's dysregulation and its ability to trigger the whole brain into um, uh, desensitization. And I, I think it's going to become much clearer. All right. All right. Well, I really appreciate your being so candid and your being open to my probing about your earlier life. And uh, what a marvelous trajectory you've gone through, uh, you know, and it's for you, it's all turned into a real gift for your, not only for yourself, but for the people that you work with. So, uh, Dr. Mike Dinadur, I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrink Wrap Radio. Thank you for having me, David. It's been a pleasure. It was delightful to make the acquaintance of Dr. Mike Dininger in my recent interview with him. Of course, he was most interested in discussing and getting exposure for his book, Multi-Channel Eye Movement Integration, The Brain Science Path to Easy and Effective PTSD Treatment. Of course, I was happy to accommodate that wish, but also particularly intrigued by his personal journey and some of the clues hinted at in his bio. Notably, I was struck by the statement in his bio that he had been an administrator at the Gallaudet School for the Deaf, but that he had also previously gone through a period of crisis due to the onslaught of disturbing childhood memories. And also I noted that after Gallaudet, he had received training in trauma work. I couldn't help but wonder if his passion for working with trauma patients was rooted in early personal traumas. I think this is often the case. I asked if he was open to discussing his growing up and any traumas he'd suffered along the way. I'd already had the impression that he's a very open person. Indeed, he shared that he grew up in a family plagued by alcoholism, his white-collar father was an alcoholic who would fly into rages. Mike was also the victim of childhood sexual assault by both parents and also by one or more priests as a boy at Catholic school. These events led to a very deep sense of guilt and shame. Not surprisingly, he became a heavy user of alcohol, beginning in his college years and extending for much of his adult life. He also discovered he was gay early on. Fortunately, he eventually got into AA, from which he derived great benefit, and was also lucky later on to work with an exceptional therapist. Out of the ashes of his traumatic beginnings, 
he worked hard on his healing and rose to become the very successful, bright, and creative trauma therapist and innovator that he is today. By way of background, EMI, or eye movement integration, is a type of therapy that involves using eye movements or other forms of bilateral stimulation to help resolve emotional issues and traumatic memories. The idea behind EMI is that by focusing on the eye movements or other forms of bilateral stimulation, the brain can more easily process and integrate difficult experiences and emotions, which can help to reduce the emotional impact of those experiences. EMDR, or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, is another type of therapy that is often used to treat trauma. EMDR involves using eye movements or other forms of bilateral stimulation to help the brain process and integrate traumatic memories and experiences. The therapy involves the therapist guiding the client through a series of eye movements or other forms of bilateral stimulation while the client focuses on a specific traumatic memory or issue. NLP or neuro-linguistic programming, is a type of therapy that focuses on the relationship between the way we think, neuro, and the way we communicate, linguistic, and our behaviors and actions, programming. NLP practitioners believe that by changing the way we think and communicate, we can change our behaviors and actions and achieve our goals. NLP has been used to treat a variety of mental health issues, including trauma. It involves techniques such as reframing, anchoring, and visualization to help individuals process and overcome traumatic experiences. Mike's approach reflects his training in NLP, EMDR, and EMI. I was surprised to learn from him that Dr. Francine Shapiro had worked in the offices of Bandler and Grinder, the developers of NLP. I myself had been in a workshop by Bandler and Grinder and remember them placing a lot of emphasis on eye movements as indicators of accessing various kinds of memories. Mike speculates that Shapiro was likely influenced by them in her development of EMDR. At any rate, Mike's innovation on these earlier approaches is his discovery that traumatic memories can more quickly and effectively be erased by directing the traumatized patients to direct their gazes in directions beyond those used by Bandler, Grinder, and Shapiro. By doing so, they are able to tap into emotions locked in different sensory-slash-emotional channels of the brain. Thus, he calls his approach MIMI, M-E-M-I, or Multi-Channel Eye Movement Integration. This is more fully explained in the interview and in his very fine book, Multi-Channel Eye Movement Integration, The Brain Science Path to Easy and Effective PTSD treatment. This book will be of particular interest to therapists of all stripes. It goes into very specific detail on how to conduct treatment 
and the underlying brain theory. My own sense is that this is not a self-help book, however. Individuals who feel they might benefit from eye movement therapy should seek out a trained professional. Dr. Mike Denninger can be reached through https colon slash slash multi-channel eye movement integration dot com. My name is Grant Strine, and I practice clinical psychology in Havertown, Pennsylvania. After months of listening to Dr. Dave's spectacular interviews and noticing their positive effects in my personal and professional lives, I felt moved to offer a small token of monetary support. Not only did this extinguish any lingering guilt about not supporting, it boosted my mood for days, and I was so happy and pleasantly surprised to get a kind and thoughtful return email from Dr. Dave himself. Now I feel a profound satisfaction for being part of the Shrink Wrap Radio community. Thank you, Grant Strine, for choosing to be guilt-free by helping to support our community financially. And thank you to all you other monthly supporters. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to my guest, Dr. Mike Denninger, for your deep personal sharing, as well as your innovative work with MEMI, M-E-M-I, a new eye movement therapy for resolving trauma. Next week, my guest will be law professor Gaia Bernstein, author of Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies. I expect this will be a very stimulating discussion. Until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.